Hello friends, welcome back to the Kaderna Podcast. This episode is a wide-ranging conversation on a topic that affects us all, healthcare. I'll be joined by my guest, Doris Dyke, who is a healthcare attorney from Frisco, Texas. First, let me give you a little of her background. Doris served as a general counsel for a local hospital before leaving to start her own firm, the Dyke Law Group, where she now helps healthcare professionals become entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs become healthcare professionals. Together, we discuss everything from the state of healthcare in America to how a physician can make the jump into a private practice, and we go over the trend of non-physicians, particularly private equity firms, taking over this recession-proof sector of healthcare. So without further ado, here's Doris Dyke. Is going to require work and time and sweat and toil. If money wasn't an issue, what would I be doing? Don't worry about it. You'll figure it out. Change is the only constant. The Kadena Podcast. Doris, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to speak to your audience and be here. Thank you. Yeah, we're excited to have you on here. I mean, I work with a lot of healthcare professionals myself, and I think whenever you start to mention business or entrepreneurship, it's kind of like this thing that seems, uh, you know, attractive, but elusive that, you know, is sometimes hard to make a reality. Absolutely. And a lot of doctors really, they think, you know, I'm making a lot of money in my job. Why start a healthcare business? Why go out on my own? But it's really the freedom to be able to do what you want. And like you said, they think, oh, it's so challenging. It's so difficult. I don't want to do it. And then when you really break it down and show them how, you know, how they can do it legally, then it becomes a more attractive, you know, proposition for them. I mean, because who doesn't want to control their schedule, control their life? Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, when you look at kind of the the benefits of entrepreneurship, it seems like everybody would want it. But then, of course, there's a lot of dues that you have to pay to to make it all work out. And, Absolutely. And how do you, what are you seeing now, like speaking to healthcare, just to kind of start there? I mean, at least the trend I've noticed is that there's more and more of these huge healthcare systems, huge hospitals kind of taking everything over. Um, is that happening where you are? Is that a nationwide thing? Or like, how do you, how do you feel doctors with the kind of the classic, like mom and pop practice? Is that a thing of the past or is that still possible? It's still very possible, but yes, you do see a lot more um, private equity companies, hospitals take over private practices. And especially after COVID, there were about 20,000 small mom and pop um, practices that shuttered during the pandemic. And really, I, I think, you know, with a lot of the executive orders that made it really very challenging for, like, say, like plastic surgeons, or anybody who had like a surgery based practice to continue, you know, when they wanted to prioritize just utilizing, you know, the absolutely needed, you know, stuff, it kind of made it challenging. But with the pandemic really just keeping on and people just learning to adjust, I do see people trying to go back and to have their own practice. And a side note, I have a practice with my husband. My husband's a neurologist. We have a practice in Frisco and we've had a practice since 2018 and he loves it. Um, he was in private practice with another group and he just wanted the flexibility and the lifestyle and obviously the more money and he's, he's getting that. <laughs> That's awesome. And that was one of the things I wanted to ask you too, is kind of with COVID, I think this is what threw a lot of people for a loop is they figure, all right, well, if a pandemic hits, everybody you would think is kind of going to the doctor. 
but not all doctors are the same. And like you just alluded to, you know, a lot of these elective procedures and things were completely put on hold. So when people talk about like an industry being recession proof and thinking that healthcare is recession proof, but then you see something like that can also impact healthcare where, you know, the government could say, Hey, you got to close your office right now. You know, what are some things that maybe people need to think about of the stability of healthcare, um, you know, in terms of economics? I absolutely still believe that uh, healthcare is recession proof because everybody still needs to go to the doctor. You just need to think about your license and what you can do with it, right? So if you're if you're a plastic surgeon, at the heart of it, you're still a surgeon. You don't have to do cosmetic surgery in the middle of a recession. You might have to do something else that is necessary, right? Like if somebody hurts their knee, they still might, like you could still do some surgeries. You can't, you couldn't do the elective stuff, but if, if it was a necessary surgery, you could still do those things. So I think that if you think about, okay, I, you know, there's a recession, there might be some type of governmental um, prohibitions on certain, you know, type of procedures or certain type of things. You just have to think creatively of what you can still do. Like we closed our office for, you know, a couple of weeks, but not too long. We did telehealth. We did other things just to keep the lights on. And Mm -hmm. I mean, my husband's a neurologist, so, you know, everybody still has seizures and, you know, unfortunately epilepsy and things like that, that still, you, you still need the services. So if you think of your, your license of what you do and, you know, what you can still offer, then you can still try to keep your business open. I think that people just needed to be a little bit more creative and just think and expand their scope. Like, you know, I, I know people who, you know, are bariatric surgeons, you know, they're not going to just do that in a, you know, in a pandemic, they're going to just do general surgery. They're going to just do other things just to keep the lights on. Okay. Interesting. And how have you seen, you know, maybe healthcare, I know this is a very broad question, but like healthcare as a whole, how has it changed, you know, on the course that it was on leading maybe up to the pandemic and then obviously COVID hits, um, did we just kind of pick up where we left off or are you seeing a lot of differences from a business standpoint of the way that healthcare is being run? I think that COVID taught a lot of healthcare businesses that they needed to be nimble and they needed to think of themselves, especially the mom and pops, they needed to think of themselves long-term. So, you know, I, I counseled a lot of people to, you know, get that PPP loan, just talk to multiple banks. Don't just talk, like a lot of people got stuck on, well, their big bank like Chase or Wells Fargo was not giving them an opportunity. I'm like, well, there are so many smaller banks that you can get some money from. So I think that a lot of a lot of healthcare executives are learning just they need to be more agile because yes, you know, nobody saw a pandemic coming, but anything could happen that could rock your the economics of your business. And you need to be able to be, I don't know, you just need to be able to sit down, meet with your attorneys, meet with your strategy personnel, and just come up with other ways for your business to make money. And I think that some people who were successful really did that really well. And others, because they weren't willing to really be flexible didn't. And I, and I think a lot of larger hospital systems actually made a lot of money during COVID because they got a lot of governmental funding because, you know, the government wanted to keep those big hospitals open. So the big players made a lot of money where a lot of the smaller players didn't because they didn't, they didn't have someone to look up the laws and look up the statutes and look up what programs were available for them to receive funding. And they didn't, weren't able to participate. So um, just having you know, the right players on your team 
you know, willing to do the research to find what you can do to get that funding was really helpful for the large hospital systems. Yeah, definitely. I mean, when you have the resources to kind of get out, of, you know, in front of things and, and be the first in line to collect a lot of those uh, kind of benefits and programs, there's definitely a, a gigantic advantage to that. And it wasn't so, even b- being the first in line. It was really just doing like doing the legwork and under like, man, I think the government gave out so many like, you know, Medicare and, you know, other type of, you know, um, you know, stipends and things like that, that small businesses just, they could have participated in, but they just didn't. Even my husband, and I, we would like see dates and, you know, miss dates because we didn't have somebody just really on it the entire time. So, you know, it just, it really just like being a dog with a bone and just research, research, <laughs> research and where you can get the funding and help from. So, yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's one of the gripes about like all the COVID relief is everyone's thankful it was there, but there wasn't like a, a nice, easy, quick kind of step-by-step path of, Hey, everybody just go here, here, and here, and, and you're good. Um, it definitely took some time and some homework. Uh, yeah. So totally understand that. And so you know, how exactly, if, if we just kind of take a step back, how did you get into healthcare? Like, I always wonder, you know, an attorney goes to law school, they graduate, and there's like a thousand different directions that you folks can go. Um, what was your, I guess, motive just to let everybody know of getting into healthcare? That's a very interesting question. So I've always wanted to be an attorney and my dad always wanted me to be a doctor. Like just, (laughs) just, that's just what it was. So, um, my sister, my older sister is a doctor. She's an anesthesiologist. My younger sister who I'm visiting today is a GI pediatric GI doctor. And my dad would like stalk me. He'd come to university of Illinois, drive up and be like, why are you not taking more science classes? Why are you not going to med school? So the compromise was that I was going to take a class. I would, I majored in health administration. Um, and I really, really liked it, but I always wanted to be an attorney. So I got this degree in health administration and I thought, well, you know, my sister is going to med school and my younger sister is on that path. Why not let me explore, you know, how I can, you know, marry the two. So, you know, in law school, you know, I took my standard classes, but I also always took classes that were healthcare focused. Like I took nonprofit employment law, healthcare law. I just took classes that I knew healthcare uh, individuals or systems needed. And then I just talked to other attorneys who were in that space because I just wanted to learn. Um, and as I did my more research, I, I really fell in love with the practice area. So then, um, I just started applying for jobs, you know, in, uh, healthcare spaces. Like I, I worked at several home healthcare companies. I, I worked at nonprofit healthcare nonprofits and I just, I don't know. I, it just, it just was a natural fit. You know, my sister, when she first got her job, obviously I was the one to look at her contracts and kind of navigate her through, you know, everything. And then when I married a doctor, it just, it just was solidified that this was the right area for, for, for me. Um, so yeah, Yeah, I don't know everybody else's story, but for me, it just was organic. It kind of was like, it, it just, it just, it just fit. Yeah, it seems that way, almost like you're surrounded by it. <laughs> it really, really is. And like the conversations around the dinner table are like, honey, what, like, how am I going to purchase this building and do this and do that? And how are we going to, it's, it's all the time. It is all the time. Or my sisters will call me with, you know, a contract issue with their, you know, employer or, or one of their friends or something. It, it's all the time 
which I mean, I love it, but it, it can be a it can be a lot when you, <laughs> yeah, you know, it uses you. Yeah, sure, sure. And so, kind of question I have with that. I mean, it sounds like obviously you have to be able to pivot, you know, based on what's going on in the economy, and then also what you want to do with your profession. So going back to, let's say, a young doctor, I mean, I, me personally, I actually work with a lot of teaching hospitals and a lot of the residents and fellows. So when they graduate and a lot of them are looking for that first job, all that they're thinking about is, oh, I hate these student loans that I'm carrying that I got to get rid of. What are maybe some of your insights if they do have a little bit of that entrepreneurial itch? Um, is it something that they should dive into head first or is it better in your experience to see maybe go work with for that big hospital, that big healthcare system, and then later on, maybe try and find out, hey, how can I start my own practice or do something a little more creative? I would recommend that if anybody wanted to be an entrepreneur, work in private practice, you should get an opportunity to see how a small or a medium size or even a large healthcare, private practice businesses run so that when you want to do it, you have an idea of where you start. Yeah, you know how to practice medicine, but do you know how to run the business? So you should see how referrals are transferred between the providers. You should see how they're doing marketing. You should see how the billing is done. Talk to the billers there, like see what they're doing. Um, see how they're, you know, doing intake calls, just like, like learn, be a sponge and learn. And then pick up some of those skills when you want to start your own practice or think of, well, how would I do this differently? When you're working in a hospital, you don't get that insight. You kind of do your work, you handle patient work, and then you go home. Unless you want to start a hospital immediately, it's not going to be as beneficial for you as if you were to work in a small or a medium-sized clinic where you really get to see how the ins and outs of the business is run. Yeah. And it seems like that also has some to do with specialties. I mean, I know not directly related to medical, but if you look at folks on the dental side, um, usually it's like go to dental school and then boom, go straight into some private practice. Uh, you know, maybe some will take a residency or whatever, but on the, the medicine side, it does seem like there's a much longer runway to eventually getting to that self-employment. Well, and some people on the medical side just never do it because they just, Again, they just don't think that they can and it just seems too hard or they've never worked in private practice. They've only ever worked in a hospital, which um, which, you know, could be great or could be, you know, not great. Um, but like like you said, on the dental side, yeah, you know, there's not like a hospital for dentists. So, you know, they are in private practice. They see it. Um, you, you know, they're with DSOs or with other uh, dental practices and then they learn and then they eventually save up the money. And a lot of them just go solo because they know that they can and they know that the money is there for them to do it. Yeah. And, you know, I think you maybe hinted at it there. Why do you think healthcare providers are reluctant to start their own business? Is it a confusion or a lack of confidence from confusion or, uh, you know, or is it just something that's kind of like a common trait of physicians to rather be, uh, you know, I don't think employees. it's a common trade. I don't think it's, no. I think it's being comfortable. Like if I have a, uh, a hospital job and I'm in, in a great situation, I'm making 250 to $500,000 working at the hospital. Um, I might be just comfortable just doing that. I mean, I like my group. I, you know, I like where I am. It's great. But I think it's when the physician is burnt out you know, they're being overworked. They're not getting the autonomy that they want with their time. 
that's when they start exploring other opportunities. Um, I think that also people don't think that they can. They, they don't think that they can find a good biller because they've heard horror stories of, you know, oh my gosh, you know, I had these issues and I lost millions of dollars, or they don't want to deal with the HR and the administrative side of running a business. Um, So that becomes very intimidating for some people, which I think is very understandable. I mean, that makes sense. However, those issues can be overcome and you don't want to be in a job that you hate just because you're intimidated by running some of the administrative stuff. Or some of them are so bogged down with their student loans, right, that they don't feel like they have the financing to do it. I mean, it does take a quite a bit of money to start a medical practice, um, sure. especially when you have student loans. So what we did, I think very wisely, is that my husband got bonuses from his job and he just saved them. So if you're getting large bonuses from your job and you're storing that money away, eventually you say, okay, I'm sitting on a pile of cash. I could either use it to pay down my student loans. I could invest it in, you know, um, a business. I could invest it in the stocks or something, save it for my kids and retirement, or I can start a business. And, and we decided that it made sense to utilize that money to start a business, which might be a different decision for other people. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, a great point. Something I talk a lot about with clients is staying liquid and how cash truly is king. You know, it does leave the door open to a lot of different options because you don't always know what the future is going to hold and, and what you want in the future as well. So and, getting, and to oh, that point, and yeah. sorry, to that point, I'll say sure. that, you know, you might you might like your job today. You might like your job this year, but in two years and three years, you might not like that job. So mm-hmm. if you've got that cash that you've been saving, it's really good to say, you know what? It's my, what they say, the F you money. I could just be like, F it, I'm gone. I can go start my thing now because I've got that that cash that I've been saving and storing for years, like a little chipmunk. So sorry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, no, that's, that's spot on. I mean, that's what we're always talking about. Financial freedom is, you know, being kind of free of financial concern and restriction so that you can go ahead and do those things that you want to do. Exactly. Um, so when somebody does want to make that jump and, and go into a, a private setting, and they come and see you, they say, all right, you know, for whatever reason, maybe because I've, I've heard kind of the right thing to do, I'm not going to go to a normal business attorney, maybe I'll go to a healthcare attorney. And then what happens next? Like, what are you looking at? What are they looking at? Uh, what are kind of the things to know at that stage? Well, for me, the first thing I'm looking at is your employment contract, right? Because People have ideas of what they think they can do versus what your employment contract says. And that's why I'm so adamant that when you graduate your residency program, you have a healthcare attorney look at that employment agreement because that is going to restrict a lot. You're going to have non-competes. You're going to have you know, certain financial expenditures that you might have to pay to leave in that agreement. So for me, that's the first thing I'm looking at. I'm going to look at that agreement and what we, what you can do, because if your non-compete says that you've got some 25 mile radius, yeah, you could start a business, but you're not starting a business close to your house. You're starting a business way out there, which is something that you might not want to do. So that's the first step. And then depending on your state laws, I know here in Texas, they're very, Uh, protective of physicians. So really starting the conversation with the old employer and trying to get some of your patients back. You want to start a business with 
patience. And if you've been seeing patients in your, with your old employer for years, you want to be able to retain some of those patients so that you've got some runway. I'll, I'll say that my husband had about 3000 patients when he started, we didn't start from ground zero, which was great because you're getting an opportunity to get some revenue coming in. And if you've been working with a hospital or a private practice, you should have some. So um, that's that's kind of where the first couple of things I want to look at. I want to look at your state law. I want to look at your non-compete and various other things in your contract just to give you some um, some opportunity to make sure that you can make money immediately. Gotcha. Yeah, and I think that's that would definitely alleviate a lot of that kind of comfort concern of you know is are there going to be paychecks coming in right out the gates. And so you mentioned your husband had like a practice almost up ready to go with patients in the door. How did, how was he able to get around that? Did he not have that non-compete or like, how how was he able to get those patients back to himself? So Texas is, uh, like I said, Texas is a a state that protects their providers, their, their physicians and the physicians are, the patients are always the the physician's patients. They're not the company's patients, right? So it doesn't matter what a contract in Texas says, like, oh, whatever. It's it's the patient always has the opportunity to choose their doctor. No one can contract that right out. So you have to inform your patients that you're leaving. Like just imagine you're an OB, right? And you have a pregnant patient and she's leaving her job. You can't just leave the patient high and dry. That's patient <laughs> abandonment. Right. So that the you have to let the patient know, hey, I'm leaving. This is the amount of time that I'm leaving. You can choose to stay with me or you can choose to not stay with me. And the patient nine times out of 10 is going to choose to stay with their doctor that they've been with for a year or, two, you know, like because, you know, you have that comfort and, you, you know, the treatments are working. You don't want to just have a random new doctor who you have no relationship with. So yeah, some of the patients might stay with a practice because of convenience, but a lot of them are going to choose to stay with their doctors. So, you know, if you're in a state like Texas, which I would think that most states are like that, that you have to inform your patients that you're leaving. And once you do that, they're going to follow you. So as long as you, you're, you know, you're tough on your employer, which I am, I'm, you know, I'm going to spit the employer, the law and give it to them straight and tell them the consequences when they don't follow the law. And usually, uh, you know, that we can resolve that issue very, fairly quickly. So. Got it. So when I, just to give uh, some, some people who may not, not be kind of like in the, the legal know of all of this. So if you're a physician, you're working at a, a large healthcare system, let's say, and then you want to do something, maybe like your husband did go start your own practice. So the things like the restrictive covenants and the non-competes, that's really speaking to either a where he can join a practice or b where he can start a practice just looking at the geography but then once he's passed that hurdle he's free to kind of go crazy soliciting those old patients or telling them hey i've got a new a new office you know let's let's kind of set up shop over here um so is that kind of the like the one hurdle i guess is finding employment uh and then after that you're free to solicit you know all of your former patients essentially so so okay so yes you you definitely want to make sure that you are abiding by whatever that non-compete says or you know there will be some consequences i know that some people um believe that non-competes are not enforceable and unfortunately many of them are i know that most of them in texas are so i um i always counsel people to try to abide by that but there are some you know workarounds that you know depending on the contract but yes um you, I wouldn't say you're soliciting your patients, but you're just, you're just 
gently informing them where you've moved, you know, and the patients can decide to follow you if the, if it's not too much of a burden, you know, if it's a 25, not, you know, 25 mile non-compete, they might not come because it's so far out for them and it's a huge inconvenience. But if the non-compete is reasonable and you negotiated in the beginning when you graduated from residency and it's like a five mile or 10 mile, yeah, your patients are going to probably follow you um, because they want to be close to where you are. So, yeah. 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 And I know even, you know, what I see on the, the business side and even in my own industry, there is a lot of that gray area where it's kind of like, all right, we won't solicit that former client, but I'll tell them I'm no longer here and I'm now over there. And then kind of they can put two and two together if they so it, choose. It, exactly. I mean, and it, it, it's, um, I, I draft those letters to the patients for, you know, my clients just so, you know, we're not, we're not disparaging anybody. We're not stepping on toes, but we're just, you know, like you said, it's that gray area of just doing it in a very respectful way to say, Hey, I'm here. You know, if you'd like to come, you can. Yeah. And do you find like uh, when, a, let's say a, a resident is going to graduate training and they're going to join, you know, our healthcare system, do they have much pull in actually negotiating that contract or is it more the big hospital saying, Hey, here's our boilerplate contract that our newbies get. Uh, if you like it, sign it. If you don't, you know, take a walk. Uh, or do you see that there is actual wiggle room there? There can be wiggle room, especially if, um, you know, what, you know, some of the, uh, rates that it's some of the other people have gotten or, um, you know, you, you, and you always want to wiggle or try to wiggle some areas, you know, I, I'm not a believer in just sign it. If you don't like it, walk, because for me, you, if you're a provider, they need you. I mean, that's how their business is run. And if, if you're getting the sign at walk, then maybe you walk because there are other places that will have you. I think that sometimes residents are so eager just to take just the job, um, that they real they don't realize that they that kind of the world is their oyster. So if mm-hmm. if we if I get to, you know, they said sign at walk, I'm like, then maybe you walk. And maybe when you try to walk, they are more willing to negotiate the agreement. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's no, I think that's true. It's sometimes you don't really know your full worth until you're ready to to walk out the door. <laughs> well and and honestly uh for a physician or like a nurse pract, I mean you literally are a walking money maker. That's just what you are. You mm-hmm. to a hospital, to a private practice, you are worth millions of dollars. I mean, you you're if you're a, I, and I don't even know what I'm not going to say what specialty, but you know if you're making five hundred thousand, it's probably because you're billing two million. Do you know what I mean? Like you are sure. worth a lot of money to them, so they're going to try to work with you. And if they are not willing to, then there's somebody else who's going to want your you you who is a walking two million dollar or a million dollar person to join their business because they're going to make a lot of money from you. So um, yeah, yeah, exactly what you said. It's understanding your worth um, to the business. I mean, yeah. And just to, to kind of build off of that point, I think one of the things that a lot of the public struggles with is hearing that, you know, these healthcare systems or hospitals are nonprofits, the majority of them. So it seems, and then you say something like that, like, Hey, this physician could be making $500,000 a year. And in essence, if you look at the numbers, it looks like they're almost underpaid if they're billing 2 million plus a year, you know, that's going somewhere, of course, it's going to the hospital, to administration, to all of these other things. Um, And then, you know, the the lay person is saying, well, I'm paying a fortune for my insurance. 
I just paid a big deductible, you know, now I'm paying some coinsurance and other things like that, or this is out of network where this one's in network. And they start to get confused, I think, by healthcare as a whole of like, how can this be so expensive when every step that I've taken, I've just worked through nonprofits. Um, can you maybe elaborate a little bit on that, on on kind of how, I guess, a nonprofit works and in terms of a, a enormous, very, what would seem profitable industry? Well, I mean, a nonprofit's especially in healthcare, the, the only requisite is that it's going to offer some type of charitable or it, you know, offers some type of healthcare to the, the general public. So when you're thinking of a hospital, the hospital does have to take charitable care. Now you might not be the one receiving the charitable care, but a hospital eats a lot of costs. They're having people because of certain laws that are in our federal law. Like if you come to the hospital and you have no insurance and you have a genuine emergency, the hospital has to see you. So the hospital seeing you and there are a lot of people like that and the hospital then eats the cost. So that doctor that is billing is not making any money, that nurse, that staff, the products that they're using on those patients, they're not making any money off of. So if you, you know, do that times like 50 times, 60 times a hundred, it, it, it's a, it's a lot. So yeah, for the lay person, mostly it's, in the emergency room. I think that's what yeah, it's in the it's in with. the emergency room. It's I mean, you know, or you have a patient who has care that costs like millions of dollars. Like we, you know, as lay people, we see like oh, a broken leg or or you know, delivering a baby. But there are people who have like cancer treatments or people who have like their babies in the NICU. Like our unfortunately, our child was in the NICU for five months, it was a $3 million bill. Like who can pay that? It doesn't matter how much you make. That's just not something that anybody can pay. So when you're at a, a, you know, a nonprofit entity, they're eating a lot of that cost to, you know, to bring that cost down because the insurance is only going to pay so much. And then the rest is on the hospital and the system and they're eating that cost. So, um, yeah, I, I, I get it. Like, you know, we're all paying a lot, but there are a lot of people who benefit from the care of a hospital and they're eating a lot of costs. And, you know, a hospital's margins and really depending on the hospital, you know, might not be so great. Like if in a large system, like in like a Chicago, a Dallas, an LA, yeah, a hospital system might be doing great, but there are a lot of rural hospitals that are billing Medicare and billing Medicaid and do have people with private insurance that are closing down even if they're, you know, their patients or their doctors are making a lot of money or making some money because the the population of the people doesn't have a lot of insurance, right? So if you got a people in the in in the in the general population who may not have a high income, um, the hospital is eating most of that cost. And then those hospitals shut down because hospitals can't eat. It's it's a business. It it can't eat all the cost. So um we are fortunate to live, you and I, and, you know, the, the majority of people are fortunate to live in large cities where we have great healthcare systems. But I was the general counsel of a rural hospital and the, because the payer mix or the people in the city, you know, made like maybe the highest average income was like 30000 $40,000. Yeah, they're, they're eating a lot of the cost. And then the people in the, it was like a, it's a city of like 2,000, 3,000 people it's not going to make a lot of money, but the doctors still need to get paid, but the uh, prescription drugs need to still be bought, but the, you know, the texts and all 
everything that is used to run that hospital is still needed, but that hospital is going to be operating in the red a lot of the times because there are not enough people who make a certain income and there are just not enough people to keep that yeah. hospital open. So it's unfortunate. So a hospital like that, the one that you were counsel of. So I assume that they're mostly billing Medicaid. Is that they're billing Medicare? Actually, they're mostly billing Medicare, but um, you know, the it, margins are margins are you know tight. That's just how it is. That's just the nature of the beast. So and is that uh, tighter than than someone you know that's working has their own health insurance? Is that um, what's kind of happening? Or somebody working having their own health insurance? Th- those are like their. I would say dream patient, but you know, there are people yeah. who are working, they don't have insurance or they're, they are working, but you know, the insurance only covers a, you know, a certain amount, or maybe they only have Medicaid, you know, there's just only so much that you can make from a situation and like that. Or reimbursements like, aren't as high. their reimbursements are just not as high. So, um, I think so that what, what happens, I'm sorry, not to cut you off, no, but it's just while it's on my mind, like when, when something like that happens, the hospital that you worked at just can't keep its doors open because of the demographic and the fact that maybe it's a little more rural, there's not enough patients. What happens next? I mean, they shut that hospital. Where do those patients go? Do they just drive further to get, they treatment? drive further. They drive, they have to drive further. They have to drive further to get treatment, which is horrible. If you look at the the country, there there were a lot of also hospitals that shut down during the pandemic too. So um, there are a lot of healthcare deserts in the country because there are just not enough people in those regions to support a hospital, or there's not enough people making a certain amount of money to support a hospital. And because, you know, um, the hospital is just not making enough money. They shut down. And then, so you used to have a hospital that's 30 minutes away. Now you've got an hour or you have two hours. Um, and you know, the, the people suffer, you know, people who are delivering, just imagine a mother trying to deliver a baby and the hospital is two hours away from your house. Like that's insane, but yeah. that's and what happens. No, it's, it's a really interesting conversation. I know this is kind of a hot topic that I'm sure a lot of people want to hear about. And I promise we're going to get back to, to healthcare law and entrepreneurship in one second. But I guess maybe the, the kind of big question that I have to kind of wrap all of that up is maybe how do you feel about, you know, our, our system, our healthcare system? Is it if I know it's a huge question, but if you could change one or two things, like, do you think there's something that really we should, um, they kind of seem to you like a no brainer, like, Hey, we got to correct this. Well, yeah, I definitely think that our healthcare system is, is very broken. I think that, um, I think that the government should kind of step in a little bit more and give people the, the necessary funding. I mean, we have Obamacare, but I don't think that healthcare should be tied to a job. I think they've got to come up with something else because I think that, I don't know, I think every citizen should have a certain amount of stipend to go get the necessary healthcare they need, because I I know that it seems like healthcare systems and doctors are making a ton of money, but they're really not. Like these people are working nonstop. Just imagine receiving calls at three o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning, what like, and you have to jump and go save a life all the time, every single day, nonstop. Um, You need to be able to compensate them, but at the same time, people need to be able to get the care. Like I definitely see the difference in care of a person if they don't have insurance. Like if you don't have insurance and you don't have any money, the care that you receive is exponentially less because that doctor is like, I've got 15 other people like you that I gotta get through. So I gotta be fast and I gotta go. Whereas if you've got some type of 
money, compensation to pay the system, to pay the clinic, to pay the doctor, you're going to get more time with the provider, which means that you're going to get better care, which is unfortunate because that's why people who have more money tend to live longer because they can go to the doctor, they can go to the hospital, they can get the care. Those ERs are filled because you have people going at the absolute like worst time. I mean, people go to the ER to get a tooth pulled because they can't afford to go to the dentist, right? Do the bare minimum and they're done. And I just, I wish that the government would give like subsidized care in some way that people really got some type of um, stipend or something so they can get the care that they need so that our healthcare systems were sufficient. You know, it, to me, it makes no sense that a rural clinic or a rural hospital would close down because there are people who need the care. They just don't have the money to support it. So yeah, that's me on my soapbox. <laughs> okay. No, that's, that's fair. That's, I think, uh, you know, everybody's opinion kind of has to get heard and that that's an ongoing debate that I'm sure will be with us for quite some time. Yeah. And so kind of now going back to, to a little bit of where we started, I know you talked a little bit of how a resident, a young doctor, or any physician for that matter, can kind of make that jump into private practice and some of the things they need to know. But you also mentioned a little bit of people who are the businessman, the entrepreneur, or whatever it may be, and they want to get into healthcare, but they do not have experience in that sector. Can you just clue us into a little bit of like how that unfolds? Well, I mean, if you if you just look at healthcare now, if you know this, the big secret is that private equity is buying clinics and buying hospital. And what I mean is, people who have a lot of money, who are who some of them have some healthcare experience, some of them are not. They are buying clinics, as in these people are not doctors, they're not nurses, they're not physical therapists, or they're none of that. They just know how business should be run. And if you are interested in healthcare, yeah, I would do my research. You know, kind of have an understanding of how billing and things like that work before I got in. But if you have the money, absolutely. I think that in most states, we have something called the corporate practice of medicine, where it makes it illegal for um, non-healthcare people to purchase clinics and things like that. But there are there are ways around that in, 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 in states, and they, they're called management service organizations. And those organizations manage, quote unquote, manage healthcare businesses. So, so you'll buy a clinic, you'll partner with a doctor, and you'll you'll buy the clinic, you'll buy the 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 building, you'll buy the materials. You will you will manage the the business side of running that business so the doctor can go out and be successful. Um, and and that's huge because that way the doctor um, can you know be billing and making all this money for your business. But you as the entrepreneur can get into healthcare where, you, you know, you don't have to necessarily be a doctor. You can just be that savvy business person that you are. Now, getting into this space, I would suggest that they work with a healthcare attorney. I know some people just kind of throw things together and they get on the DOJ's hit list. But um, really, it's, it's, it's very possible. It's just having, the again, the right resources and doing things the correct way. And is, is that just another thing, I mean, that, that seems almost uh, kind of like a, a loophole of sorts, where you mentioned that there are certain laws out there that say, you know, if you want to own a clinic, you've got to be a practitioner, you've got to be a physician. So if I just say, hey, you know, I, I want to go work with these docs, because I think their practice is going to be very lucrative. 
let me sign into an agreement with them and I'll front a bunch of money and then get a, a share of all their profits. It seems like there's clear law that's meant to prohibit that. Um, but you're saying that there's ways that everybody kind of knows that you can circumvent that? Yeah, there are there are certainly ways, you know, and sitting down and talking to an experienced healthcare attorney. Yeah, there's absolutely. I mean, that's the only way that you have these large systems that are run by business people and not run by doctors. Like some hospitals are owned and managed by uh, doctors, but most of them are not. And this is how they, they do it there that, yeah, there are laws that prohibit that, but if it's done in a way that is, that abides by the law, then you can definitely participate in, in the healthcare space, which I would encourage a lot more people to do, especially if you're a savvy, you're, you, you want to follow the law and you're, you know, you want to, you know, do the right thing, then yeah, you just have to be willing to um, understand that healthcare is meant for, for the doctor um, and know that you're not going to get a hundred percent of the profit. Like, you know, some people sure. come to me and they, they go, oh, wow, well, I'm putting all this money and I'm only going to get this or I'm only going to get that. Well, again, if the law says that it, the business is supposed to be run by the doctor, you're getting, you're, you're able to participate. Yeah. You're going to get some, a good return and you're going to get some money, but you're not going to get a hundred percent. And you just have to be able to swallow that and understand that you are partnering with someone. And if you can get that, then you can be successful too. I mean, there are so many, and this happens more in the, in the dental space. You see chain dental practices and people wonder how that, like people don't think twice about it. Well, there's one overall owner who owns all those chains and they're partnering with dentists all over the place to make that work. Like Aspen Dental. Like that's a, that's a dental service organization. They, they, they partner with a whole bunch of dentals, dentists to make that work. But the overall owners, the main owner of that big business is, is not a dentist. So they're just very smart people who follow the law and, and work the law to their favor. Yeah. And you alluded to that little kind of DOJ hit list. Is that, um, is that something that those people have to kind of be worried about or it's not something that- you have to be worried about. It's just that I am a believer that if you're going to start a business, I'm sorry for cutting you off. You really got to start it with a regulatory attorney like me or whoever you hire. You have to start a bit like everything that you're trying to do, like from the marketing, like it even really goes to the marketing, the billing, things like that. Like if you're taking Medicare or any insurance money, you have to be very cautious on what you're doing. And just, you need to be able to work with your attorney. You can't just do something because another industry did it. That's not healthcare, how healthcare works. And healthcare providers, they know that because they've been, it's been drilled in their brain. But I think sometimes, sometimes we forget it. We see somebody else do something and we say, oh, well, they did it. Why can't I do it? Or everybody does it. That's what I hear all the time. Everybody does it, or my friend did it and they didn't have a problem. And I'm like, some people do cocaine. That doesn't mean that you should do it too. That just that just is something that some people do, and some people get in trouble for that, and some people don't. It's just that's just how yeah. it goes. So I always, you know, I, I know that's a very extreme example, but that's just the truth. Because if you, I mean, and the, the information is free, right? If you go on the DOJ website and you look at some of the things that people get in trouble for, you can be, you know, you're kind of baffled, but someone thought that that was a wise idea and they participated in this idea that, you know, got people in trouble and, you know, it is what it is. Okay. For example, and I kind of did this on my, I kind of posted this story on my Instagram. There was a, um, an accountant and a pharmacy 
that got in trouble um, because they had a $150 million scam where they would um, target 55-year-old senior citizens, 55 and older, and they would, um, I guess they would like call them and they get their data and then they would fax a whole bunch of like meds to their like prescriptions to their, or fax a whole bunch of stuff to their doctors to get the prescriptions and then sent to these people's houses. Mind you, the patient has never talked to the doctor. The doctor has never talked to the patient, but this pharmacy and this accountant concocted the scheme in their brain where they were going to just kind of come up with this and send this, these meds to these patients who've not talked to the, not talked about their issues to their doctor and the patients are ingesting these meds. Um, and they're just billing the insurance. They're not charging a copay. They're saying that the medicine is free. We're just going to bill your insurance. And they did this for nine years. Well, eventually the DOJ is going to catch on at $150 million later, people are going to jail for a long time. And I don't know where, I, I don't know these individuals. Um, I don't know where they thought that was a good idea, but people come up with ideas. And that's why yeah. I, I just, you know, and people are good people. They just want to make money. They just like, and when you're talking to your attorney, sometimes they're going to tell you no, and that's okay. They're telling you no, not because, you know, they, you know, they have an issue. They're telling you no, because they don't want you to get in trouble. And they don't want anything bad to happen to you. That's that's me. Like, I don't share in the money, you know, at all. Like, I don't care. Like, whatever you do is your business. But I'm telling you no, because I don't want a bad outcome for you. And mm -hmm. you you need someone who's going to be reading the DOJ website constantly to see, talk to you about these schemes and what people get in trouble for. So that you, so they can say, you know what? I read something like that. Let's not. Yeah. 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 Well, I think there's, there's some that are just a, a factor of negligence and then some that are just complete malintent like that, where yeah. people could care less about the outcomes. They're just trying to make dollars and uh, obviously and, and, you hope they get caught quickly. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. Like there are, there's some people like that, like that company it's yeah, they, they just don't care, but they're really good people who really think that the idea that they've come up with is a good one. They think it's legal. They really think there's no problem and, and you'll tell them and you'll tell them. And um, sometimes they listen, sometimes they don't. Um, and I always, you know, wish and hope everybody the best, but um, there is a reason that there are more healthcare attorneys coming up because people do get in trouble. And I, I, I want people to hire me before they get the complaint, before the issue arises. I want to partner with people so that they, we can kind of navigate through their, you know, their ideas on, you know, how they're going to do things and let's just do it the right way. So. Yeah, definitely. No. And I think that's, uh, you know, why certainly, uh, you know, attorneys exist is try and uh, help us do the right thing and stay out of trouble while we do it and be compliant. Exactly. Um, one of the, maybe the last things I wanted to kind of ask you about, that's a bit of a segue from that is I've seen more and more of these types of management service organizations uh, domicile in Puerto Rico um, because of the, the really, really nice tax advantages that you can get by being a business in Puerto Rico. Is that something that you're seeing at all with, with some of the physicians that you work with? Is that something that's expanding, contracting? Um, I haven't seen that only because it's very challenging for, I mean, I, I I understand the tax benefits of being in Puerto Rico, but anytime I'm counseling a physician or someone who wants to work with physicians, I, I try to get people to work in the states that they're in only because you want to be able to, if there's an issue, you want to be able to litigate 
the issue. And if I'm in Puerto Rico or if I'm in somewhere that's real far, it becomes very challenging to move um, a lawsuit or anything to progress, right? Like um, MSOs are great, but some people start these businesses with people they don't really know, whether it's the entrepreneur or the doctor, they just kind of run into it. And I'm not a fan of that. I'm a fan of you start an MSO with, with a doctor that you're comfortable with. You don't have to be best friends, but you, you do have a good sense of who they are. And, um, I, I, I just, um, cause there, there can yeah. be some discrepancies later on and, you know, it's a business and you, you need to be able to, um, if you need to sue, you need to be able to sue. And I don't know how, that yeah. I mean, you can sue in Puerto Rico, but it, I just think it becomes a bit well, more challenging. It's, it's been more like, at least in my experience, it's been physicians or partners who they know the folks that they're in business with. Um, but it's just kind of like the classic move that that all of corporate America used to do of, you know, domiciling in Delaware or mm-hmm. maybe in Nevada, um, mm-hmm. just whether it was for, you know, legal benefit or for tax benefit. Um, so I didn't know if, if it, there's really any kind of change going on in healthcare that's continuing to I, kind of allow that type of maneuver or if it's something frowned upon? I I have not seen that. It probably is a little bit more frowned upon because, you know, it's just not something I would would do. But Delaware and Nevada, I, I still see. But I see that with people who want to, to, who want to be larger organizations, right? Like if you're coming and you're starting small, a lot of people just want to start in their state. But I see Delaware and Nevada when they're trying to purchase the hospital or make the large group. But I have not seen... Puerto Rico. I have not. Mm-hmm. I know that, okay. I, I know about Puerto Rico's tax advantages, but I have not had anybody come to me with that one yet. Gotcha. And um, there was one more that that kind of slipped my mind that was uh, okay. a bit of, <laughs> I'm sorry, but it was a bit of a trend that I was seeing and hearing about that I wanted to ask. But um, yeah, yeah, just, I'm sorry, that one, uh, that just kind of slipped my mind. <laughs> no, it's okay. So, yeah. And this has been good. This has been very informative as far as kind of the landscape of healthcare and also letting people know not just how to start a business as a physician, but on the flip side, what we just kind of spoke about, that there is opportunity out there for people who are entrepreneurial minded to get into healthcare. And and I think that was kind of the one thread that I wanted to kind of tie it up here with is you mentioned private equity is, and we all seen it, having such a huge impact on healthcare right now. They're buying up nursing homes left and right. Yep. Is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? And is that the future? I mean, are they just kind of going to take over healthcare? I mean, I assume that would kind of tell everybody that wants to get in, hey, this is something that's profitable. And like you said, that is recession proof because this is what the deep pockets and the Wall Street people are doing. Um is that just going to continue? Is there any end in sight for that type of? Uh... That is going to continue. Amazon just bought um, one medical. Like they, it's just it's it's going to be more widespread. The more people um, understand that this is something that you can do, I think more non clinicians will get into healthcare. Which to me behooves my your clinician listeners to get in. Like you're letting other people who are not even in your profession control you it just it doesn't it doesn't make sense to me so i just feel like look and i represent physicians and i represent non-physicians but for my clinician entrepreneurs i'm it just it doesn't make sense to work for someone when you can work for yourself but at the on the flip side if the clinicians don't want to do it hey why not like you know i don't think it's necessarily a bad thing 
for healthcare at all. Because if you have 20,000 or 16 to 20,000 small clinical practices closed down, that might suggest that some of these people are not savvy business people. So if you have people who can do it in a way that's cheaper, better, faster, then get them in. They'll have to just really learn from their clinician counterparts to teach them, okay, well, you know, you can't do this in healthcare or things have to be done in a particular way, but I don't necessarily see it as a bad thing. Yeah. I I mean, I think maybe kind of the bad connotation a lot of people get, and and I've seen this being on boards for different nonprofits and charities and things, is that you'll have the private equity guys come in who, in theory, are kind of more business savvy and smart with the money. But a part of that is cutting costs. And so they may say, all right, we'll buy up this little conglomerate. But, oh, those two hospitals there aren't making a penny. So let's just dump them. And they'll just, you know, kind of cut them loose, almost just saying this is a smart financial move without any cares to the repercussions to that that area or those patients or those those doctors there. And I think and that's I, what I a think, lot of people hear about and and don't really like the PE side. I and I and I and I understand that. You know, that to me makes a lot of sense. But at the end of the day, healthcare business is still a business. And that's yeah. something we it's a dirty thing that we have to think about, but it it it's still a business and the business has to make money. Like the doctors and the hospital cannot give away care for free. They would love to because doctors and nurses and the staff are very altruistic, but they have to eat. You know, a lot of these rural communities, they cannot pay the provider. Like the providers will go weeks without getting paid and then having to be caught up. You know what I mean? Like that gets old very fast. So you might need people to step in to understand, okay, wow, why are we spending all this money on this item when it's not making any money? Like we are investing so much here. We need to cut that cost and put it somewhere else just because that makes money. I, I Again, yeah, I, I never want to dump a community because I think that everybody needs healthcare and I think it's so sad, but we need to find a way to make things make money. Otherwise it just, it doesn't work. And as as altruistic and as nice as everybody is, once people stop receiving their paycheck, people are not nice anymore. They get very angry. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it's the harsh reality of economics is uh, money money does play a factor in in all decisions when you kind of boil it all down. Exactly. Um, So, Doris, this was really, really informative. And um, both I'm just kind of thinking as we're going through all this with clients that are physicians and also my wife is finishing an NP program right now. Oh, wow. Congratulations to her. Yeah, she's excited. You know, they're they're kind of getting a bigger and bigger footprint for sure. And and a lot of it is, you know, driven by everything from cost cutting measures to just kind of diversifying, you know, what what healthcare can offer. Um, Anything else that that you want to throw in that we may not have covered or, or something that our listeners maybe should know about? like we covered a wide speck of things and I, <laughs> I think this is this has been a, this has been really really nice um I I um I think I think that we covered it all I mean cool. I just okay. uh I I'm so thankful for getting the opportunity to, to meet with you and your your listeners and you know this was fun yep and we're very happy to have you where can folks find you if they want to learn more and know more about uh, what we discussed so you can find me at dklawg.com. That's our website. So it's www.dklaw, 
and the letter G.com. Or you can follow me on Instagram on healthlaw underscore trademark lady. Um, Cause I do healthcare law and I trademark healthcare businesses. Got it. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks for your time, Doris. And uh, everyone, please keep tuning in wherever it is that, uh, that you're following us. Be sure to leave a review, tell a friend, and we will see you next time on the Kaderna podcast. Take care. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. This podcast is intended for the general public and for informational purposes only. The show does not provide any recommendations or investment advice regarding any specific account type, service, strategy, or product, or to otherwise act in any fiduciary or other capacity. Please contact a financial professional for guidance and information that is specific to your situation. Brian Kaderna does not provide tax or legal advice. Please contact your accountant or legal advisor to discuss your situation. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian, or Kaderna Financial Team, and opinions stated are their own. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. References to specific securities, asset classes, and financial markets are for illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a solicitation, offer, or recommendation to purchase or sell a security. Brian Kaderna is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS, OSJ, 300 Broadacres Drive, Suite 175, Bloomfield, New Jersey, 07003, phone number 973-244-4420. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Kaderna Financial Team is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. California Insurance License Number 0K04194.